Well, good morning and welcome to Faith Bible Church. My name is Seth Brown. I'm the pastor of Adult Connections on behalf of the staff and elders of the church. We are thankful that you're gathering with us this morning as we worship the Lord together. As we gather today, whether you're in Edmond or around the world, our hope is that you come expectantly and ready to worship and full of joy and hope that can only come from Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're blessed that you're joining with us as we worship. We're going to be singing God's truth and hearing his word preached this morning. And uh, we're praying for a wonderful time uh, with you and whoever you're gathering with. Remember to use the hashtag Faith Bible at Home if you are posting your gathering pictures to social media. We would love to see your smiling faces. Again, that's hashtag Faith Bible at Home. Uh, this is the first Sunday, first Sunday of the month, uh, but be aware that we will not be tar- partaking in the Lord's Supper this morning. We're going to wait. Uh, we're going to wait until we regather in June uh, to do that again, and so you, that's something to look forward to at the beginning of June. And speaking of regathering together, uh, I do have some good news to share this morning. The elder, the elders have made the decision uh, that we will be regathering as a church family on Sunday, May the twenty fourth, for the first time. Uh, so we're excited about that. We, we, are, we hope that's going to be a, a wonderful time to physically gather once again. Um, services will, be, will change a little bit. Uh, we're going to be gathering at 9 and 11, both on that Sunday, the 24th, and on the 31st. So again, that's 9 and 11 a.m. And uh, there will not be a nursery. There will not be any Sunday school classes, no children's, no youth activities, uh, no ABFs. We will just be gathering to worship uh, on those two Sundays. And steps are going to be taken to prepare the building, to prepare the worship center. Uh, we're going to do everything we can to follow the social media, uh, social distancing guidelines that have been set forth by the state. And we would also encourage you, if you're over 65, um, to, to follow the safer at home guidelines that the state has set forth as well. And, and so we'll be talking a lot more about this uh, before we gather back on the 24th. Uh, but just keep an eye out for emails and social media postings. We're excited to be, ba- to, to be back with you again on that date and, and moving forward. And so just pray for uh, all the details as they uh, come out of that. Lastly, as we prepare this morning to worship our God through singing, uh, I want to read a prayer from the Valley of Vision. This is a, a, a book of poems and meditations um, from Puritans uh, from through the, through the years. And I pray that God uses these words to focus our hearts this morning uh, on him. So please pray with me. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought us to the Valley of Vision, where we live in the depths but see thee in the heights. We are hemmed in by mountains of sin, but we behold thy glory. Let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let us find thy light in our darkness, thy life in our death, thy joy in our sorrow, thy grace in our sin, thy riches in our poverty, and thy glory in our valley. Amen. The king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Oh, he is my song. Let 
we come before you thankful. We are thankful for your son who has brought us from death to life. And Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to praise you in the midst of a valley, like Seth prayed earlier. Lord, especially because it is here in a valley that you you teach us to trust you and rely on you more and to be satisfied in you more. And we just ask for that, that you would satisfy us in your son. Amen.
Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to our live stream here at uh, Faith Bible Church. Uh, we're glad you've uh, joined us this morning, uh, wherever you may be. I know that there are uh, people watching uh, from all over the world, and it's uh, great to have you as uh, part of our congregation here at Faith Bible Church this morning. I want to thank our uh, worship team uh, for leading us in exalting our great God and extolling uh, the truth of the gospel. And I want to thank our tech team as well for all the, the work they've been putting in these last several weeks to keep us up and running. Uh, we appreciate uh, their excellent, efficient work, especially at this uh, strategic time in our ministry here at the church. And I want to just uh, give a special thanks to all of you uh, this morning for your faithful support, uh, financial support, since we've uh, been able to, to, unable to gather in person over these last several weeks. Um, on behalf of the staff and the elders, uh, we can't thank you enough for your, your obedience to God and, and uh, your faithful financial stewardship. It's uh, a great blessing to us, and we thank you so much for that. Uh, before we open God's Word together this morning, let's join our hearts uh, together in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, your grace. Uh, we thank you for your goodness. Father, in you we live and we move and we have our being. You're our life and our hope. We thank you for your provision, your protection for your providence in our lives. But most of all, we thank you for your pardon, that you've pardoned each one of us who've called upon your name. You've washed away our sins and given us eternal life. Father, we thank you that in difficult days, as many of us are facing in recent times, that we can turn our problems into prayer, that we can seek you and find you, and in you we can find um, help in our, our time of need. Father, I pray for each home and each heart that's represented here today, many people who are watching. And Lord, I pray that you just bring encouragement and strength to each life and to each heart. Father, help us not to put our security in ourselves or our health or our bank account, but in you alone. Father, move all of us to continue to invest our time and our lives in things that are lasting. Father, I pray that you'd use this message this morning to prompt us to pursue you to pursue the truth. And now as we open your word together, Father, we pray that you'll use it to build us up spiritually. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get started this morning, I thought uh, we could all use a little bit of levity in our lives in these times. So some people have sent me some different slides and things about kind of the quarantine life, but I, th I found a few others. I thought I'd share a few of these with us this morning. Uh, you'll, you'll see them on your screen. First one says, don't call the police on suspicious people in your neighborhood. Those are your neighbors uh, without makeup and hair extensions. And the next one is, uh, me after washing my hands for 20 seconds, 57 times in one day. It's about how I'm feeling these days. Prediction, there will be a minor baby boom in nine months, and then one day in 2033, we'll witness the rise of the quarantines. I like that. This is a good one here. My husband is for sale. That may be uh, hitting a little closer to home than we realize. After listening to Linda, his human, for 12 hours while in quarantine as she complained for hours on end, Sparky realized he was not cut out to be an emotional support dog. <laughs> Ladies, time to start dating the older dudes. They can get you in the grocery store early. Next year's school picture. I like that. It's been a while since some of us have been to the, to the uh, uh, barber shop. Me, after I eat all my quarantine snacks in one night. You know, they talk about the freshman 15 in college. They're talking now about the quarantine 15. 
Amazon, your package will be delivered Wednesday. Me, when is that? If you're like me, you're kind of losing track of what day it is now these, these days. Wife, did I get fat during quarantine? Husband, you were never really skinny. Time of death, 425.20, 11.23 p.m., cause of death, coronavirus. I love this one. When coronavirus shuts down school, farm parents, city parents. Well, hopefully that's a little levity for us today. We're, a, we're in a strong passage today in Second Peter as we continue our study there. And hopefully a little bit of levity to begin out will be, to begin will be good for us. Uh, we're continuing our study of Second Peter. It's a, a study we've titled "Know and Grow." And that when Peter is writing this letter of Second Peter, um, he's under mandatory quarantine, if you will. Um, he's in a Roman prison awaiting execution. So as we read these words this morning in Second Peter chapter two, Peter's living the quarantined life. I mean, he's undergoing a mandatory government-ordered quarantine. Now, what's interesting to me in the book of 2 Peter is the main focus of Peter and the main aim of these final words of the apostle Peter is to expose and defeat the intrusion and the infiltration of some false teachers. That's the core and the center of this book or this letter. Remember in chapter 1, he talks about spiritual growth, and in chapter 3, he talks about the second coming. But in between, in chapter 2, really the core of this letter, he talks about spiritual seducers, false teachers. That's really the heart of this letter. 2 Peter chapter 2 is about false teachers. Now, to kind of get our bearings again in this chapter, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Peter kind of gives a summary of false teachers in those three verses, kind of an overview of them. And then in verses 4 to 9 that we looked at last time, he gives the sentence upon these false teachers, talks about their coming judgment. So we have a summary, then we have their sentence or what's going to happen to them. And then our text this morning in verses 10 through 22 is going to give some specifics about false teachers. It's going to kind of drill down a little bit further and give us some more information about what false teachers are really like. So let me read these verses for us. We'll begin in the middle of verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 2. By the way, I'll just mention this now. You might look at this later on your own, but 2 Peter chapter 2 tracks very closely with the book of Jude. Striking parallels between uh, the book of Jude, which is just 25 verses long, and this part of, uh, of 2 Peter. So let me begin here in the middle of verse 10. Daring self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of wrongdoing, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin." enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. 
for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he's enslaved. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in, in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It's happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. Been doing uh, quite a bit of reading here lately. I try to do that often, but reading, doing some reading about false teaching, about false teachers and seducers in the church. And I ran across this, this article I want to share with you. The writer says this, modern society lives in an age of terror. Unstable nations build weapons of mass destruction. Islamic fascists plant bombs in New York's Times Square. They blow up trains in Spain and create chaos in English subways. The threat of a nuclear attack constantly lurks in the background of our consciousness. Now imagine a quieter weapon of mass destruction, a weapon that when unleashed can do as much damage to a nation as explosive acts of war. Historically, one of the great weapons of mass destruction is actually nothing more than a piece of paper, a counterfeit bill. The most dangerous threat to our way of life might be something as small and unnoticeable as a missing watermark on a $20 bill. For more than 2,000 years, countries have sought to destabilize their enemies by spreading counterfeit money. During the Civil War, Northerners sought to undermine Southern morale and the basis of its slave-based economy by forging, forging Confederate currency. Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, told the Confederate Congress in 1862, soldiers of the invading armies are found supplied with large quantities of forged notes as a means of despoiling the country people by fraud. Out of such portion of their property as armed violence may fail to reach. In the Confederate Congress, one legislator said, wherever their armies have invaded our country, these notes have been scattered. This is one of the most destructive blows made against our government. The aim and the tendency is destroy, to destroy all faith in the currency of the country. By creating mass confusion regarding the value of Confederate money, the North helped speed the demise of the Confederacy. And then the, the writer says this, just think of what would happen if counterfeit bills flooded America. There'd be massive confusion. It would take millions of dollars to educate the populace in becoming experts at seeing the truth in order to spot the fakes. By imitating the genuine, the counterfeit money creates confusion and typically distorts the value of real currency. The counterfeit works because it mimics the real deal so well. And that's exactly the same way it is with false teaching. It works because it mimics the real deal so well. And false teaching in the church is a massive counterfeit operation by the enemy that tries to destroy the true currency of the gospel. Years ago, in fact, back in the second century A.D., Irenaeus, uh, one of the great uh, luminaries in the early church, uh, wrote a, a five-volume work called Against Heresies. 
Back in the second century, the Gnostic heresy was infiltrating and infecting the church. And he wrote these five volumes. But here's one thing that Irenaeus said. He says, Error indeed is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. But it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to be more true than the truth itself. And that's what makes false teaching and seduction so dangerous. And Satan's weapon of mass destruction is flooding the church with counterfeit Christianity that looks enough like the real currency uh, to deceive. Like Irenaeus said, it appears to be more true even than the truth um, itself. And so for that reason, nothing is more offensive to God than deception. Now, look, I know that, that all of us would like to just think about positive things all the time and, you know, never deal with things like false teachers and, and false teaching. But if we did that, we wouldn't be true to the New Testament. One of the most addressed themes in the New Testament is false teachers and false teaching. Pretenders, charlatans, uh, spiritual hucksters. I mean, warnings about them abound in almost every New Testament book. It's found in the Gospels where Jesus warned, warned about wolves who would come in sheep's clothing. And you find it throughout Paul's letters. In fact, many of Paul's letters, the main reason they were written was to counteract false teaching. And we see it here in 2 Peter. I mean, it's a, a, the major theme of the book. We see it in John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, the whole book of Jude is a book written to combat false teaching. And in the book of Revelation, the, the seven letters to the seven churches, almost all of those address some false teaching within those churches. Uh, there's a writing uh, some of you might enjoy looking at. It's called the Didache. It's D-I-D-A-C-H-E, the Didache. It's called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It's a writing very early in the church. And if you read the Didache, it has a lot to say about false prophets and false teachers as well. So look, heresy didn't start in the 21st century. It's been around since the beginning. It's been around for a long time. And what we see today is nothing new. It's just the same old counterfeits that get repackaged and dressed up in new clothes as each generation comes along. And we see a lot of these same errors. People today who deny the infallibility and the inspiration and the authority of the Bible, they put themselves above uh, the Word of God. People who deny a literal hell, they, they believe in what's called universalism. They believe that everybody's going to go to heaven regardless of their relationship with Christ. Of course, there's the, the health and wealth gospel. Uh, they've kind of come out of the woodwork they did initially with this coronavirus crisis. Now, they claim to have all kinds of cures for coronavirus and, and all this and showed their true colors, but they've all kind of fallen strangely silent now. There's people out there that set dates for the coming of Christ. Uh, we see more and more in our culture today among false teaching within the church a condoning and a celebrating of sexual freedom and same-sex relationships and kind of the removal of moral restraint where people are elevating God's love and His mercy and His grace at the expense of His holiness and His justice. They're kind of pitting one attribute of God against another people believing that, that they can be good enough to go to heaven on their own. And that's really the message of all of progressive Christianity out there today. Their whole message is about protecting creation and loving your neighbor and, and a social justice. 
Certainly those things are important, but they've put the effect for the cause. In other words, they've taken the effect of what Christianity should produce, and they've made that the cause or, or the, the, yeah, the cause of how someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. Certainly we want to protect creation, love our enemies, and be socially just. We can only do that and be pleasing to God as we've recognized our sinfulness and come and put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we can't be good enough in doing those things to earn our way to heaven. And then there's the gospel today that's pervasive out there in, in, in Christianity, the gospel of self-fulfillment and the gospel of freedom. Uh, Danny Aiken, uh, is a, a scholar, a Bible scholar, says that cults and false teachers do math. I love this. He says, they add to God's Word, they subtract from the person and work of Christ, they multiply requirements for salvation, and they divide the fellowship of the church. So they add, they subtract, they multiply, and they divide. Now, before we get into the details of this diatribe that Peter has here, and again, we won't be able to look at every part of it in in great detail, but I want to just mention kind of two all-encompassing errors that we see in false teachers. This is kind of a, a summary of the seduction that we see. I want to just point out two phrases in these verses we've read that I think are a a summary of what we have. Notice in verse 15, they depart from the gospel. Verse 15 says, they forsake the right way, and they've gone astray. They forsake the right way. If you look back in chapter 2 of this same chapter, it says, the way of truth will be maligned because of these false teachers. So we have the way of truth. Here in verse 15, we have the right way. And in verse 21, we have the way of righteousness. What all this points to is that there's a way that God has set out. It's the way of truth. It's the right way. It's the way of righteousness. And, of course, that way is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the book of Acts, seven times uh, the gospel or Christianity is called the way And, of course, that comes from the statement of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, uh, and the life. And, of course, false teachers forsake the way. They get off the path. They go astray. They ultimately reject the gospel. I like what St. Augustine said years ago. He said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe but yourself. That's really what we have today, a lot of people believing themselves. So the key is to know the right way and to lead other people in that way, to show them the way to heaven. And false teachers veer off of that way. I read a story once about Erwin Lutzer. He talked about a friend of his that unintentionally found himself in the middle of a funeral procession. And when he saw that the hearse was leaving the town to go to the cemetery, he knew he needed to turn around somewhere, so he turned off on a side road only to discover that dozens of cars followed him. And he stopped his car and waited along the side of the road and watched as one by one the cars went by him. And he said to this day, he wonders where all those people ended up. But but who we follow is very important. We need to know the way. We need to lead others in the way. And that's what false teachers do. The basic thing they do is they forsake the right way. They go astray. The second thing they do is they deny and distort God's Word. And I I find this down in verse 19, a little phrase there, promising them freedom. One of the things false teachers do is they come along and they promise people freedom. 
They promise that you'll find true freedom and true fulfillment in uh, their message. And in that, behind that, you can hear the hiss of the serpent in the garden. We told Adam and Eve, if you'll just, he tells tells, uh, Eve, he says, if you'll just forsake what God has said and listen to me, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You can throw off the restraints that God's placed upon you, and you can find true freedom and true fulfillment in throwing off uh, the restraints that God has placed upon you. It's all about unmitigated fulfillment of self. It's called the the gospel of self-fulfillment or freedom, but it's it's the self-centered gospel of freedom that tragically contains no gospel and gives no freedom. It's tragic. Look, Jesus didn't call us to be true to ourselves. He called us to come and deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. So those are kind of the two overarching traits of these false teachers. They, they, they forsake the way and they distort God's Word and, uh, and call people to throw off the restraints and find self-fulfillment and freedom in pursuing their own way. Now, with those kind of overarching ideas in mind, let me just go through here briefly four kind of more specific characteristics of false teachers. Again, if you uh, downloaded the outline, you can see them there. False teachers are brazen, they're base, they're barren, and they betray ultimately the truth. First of all, they're brazen. Look in verse 10. It says they're daring and self-willed. They're bold and brazen and and defiant and brash, and they're self-willed. Literally, it means they're self-pleasing. Uh, They insist on their own way. In other words, they don't want to be under authority. They don't want anybody over them. And they arrogantly come along and deny uh, true teaching. Now, Peter goes on here and gives an extreme example of their brazenness and arrogance. He says in verse 11, or the end of verse uh, 10, they revile angelic majesties. Now, my view is these angelic majesties here are fallen angels. Now, you say, well, how can fallen angels be called majesties? Well, they still possess supernatural glorious essence even in their fallen state. They retain something of their former image even though it's been marred. And you'll notice in verse 11, it says, whereas angels, these would be the good angels, the unfallen angels, who, do, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So he's saying unfallen angels or good angels don't do to fallen angels who are inferior to them what false teachers do to fallen angels who are superior to them. Now we know that he's talking here about, false, uh, about uh, demons or fallen angels because of the parallel over in the book of Jude. If you want to look over in Jude, verse 8 and 9 for just a moment, there's a a striking parallel with what we see here in 2 Peter 2. In uh, in verse 8 of Jude, it says, Yet in the same way these men, by dreaming, defile the flesh. They reject authority. They revile angelic majesties. The same idea. Then he gives this illustration, but Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not pronounce a railing judgment against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude here is telling us that when, uh, when Moses died, that Satan and Michael the archangel had a dispute um, about his body. Now, people wonder, well, why were they disputing about his body? Why did Satan want the body of Moses 
Um, a, book, uh, a, a book that's uh, not in Scripture called The Assumption of Moses gives two suggestions. It says that Moses was a murderer and that Satan, the king of death, had the right to all dead bodies. So Satan's coming probably wanting um, the, the body of Moses. Now, probably the reason I believe he wanted his body was to set up some kind of shrine so the people would venerate Moses so he could create some kind of false worship. But the point here is, in this dispute, even Michael the archangel did not rebuke Satan, did not bring a railing accusation against him, but that's what false teachers do. In other words, they're bold and they're brazen and they're arrogant. And in their reckless presumption, they do what unfallen angels won't even do. It's kind of like the old saying that says, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And that's certainly true here in this case. And if you notice, a lot of false teachers, they're always talking to the devil and the demons. They're always rebuking Satan and binding the devil and telling demons what to do. Now, they spend a lot of their time talking to the devil about God. What I see in the Scriptures is, is that we're to talk to God um, about the devil and about demons to seek help. John MacArthur, years ago, the well-known preacher, said this. He said, who am I to tell Satan what to do? I can't even get my kids to do what I say. That's true, uh, sadly uh, too true for many of us. But the point here is, is Peter wrote these words 1,900 years ago, and that's what a lot of false teachers are still doing today. But he goes on in verses 12 to 16 to further describe these false teachers. And in the original Greek, verses 12 to 16 is one long sentence. And he says about these false teachers in verse 12, he says, they're like unreasoning animals. In other words, they just live on the the level of, of animal instincts. They just fulfill their own passions and their desires. They act like experts, but they just just really operate on the level of their instincts and their desires. And then the end of verse 13, he says, they will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. They're going to, in verse 13, the beginning of the verse, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. So in other words, what he's saying to us again is they're going to be judged. They're going to ultimately get what they deserve. But, but the first feature of these false teachers is they're brazen. They're just defiant against authority. The second characteristic of these counterfeits is their base, their base. Wrong belief always leads to wrong behavior, and we see that in their lives. He says they revel, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Uh, their stains, he calls them, and their blemishes. Uh, the word stains means filthy spots and blemishes. Literally, it's a, a kind of a gross word. It means like a, a scab or a running sore. This is a very a graphic description of what false teachers are like. Um, rather than being trying to be pure in their lives and be spotless, they're stains and blemishes. They live ungodly lives. Verse 14, he says, having eyes full of adultery. Literally, you could translate this, they have eyes full of an adulteress. In, every, in other words, every woman they see is an object of sexual fantasy and conquest. He says they never cease from sin. In other words, they, they can't stop it. They're enslaved to it. And then he says they're enticing, um, unstable souls. That, that word enticing means literally to lure with bait. And their bait is promises of maybe of wealth or health or success or, or freedom or self-fulfillment. And it says here they enti- entice unstable souls. 
They're always looking for their victims, and they're always looking for those who are unstable and naive and uh, untaught in, in the Word of God. Their eyes are always on the lookout for weak, unstable souls. They're like predators. And then the end of verse 14, he gets to the heart of the matter, and he says, they're trained in greed. They're accursed children. So what are they really ultimately after? They're ultimately after money. Notice, remember back in chapter 2, verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. It's really graphic here. It says they have a heart trained in greed. And we get that word, uh, we get uh, our English word gymnasium from this word. It's like they're going to the gym and working out and training themselves in new techniques of greed. Uh, they're well trained in it. They're, they're trained in the techniques of greed. In fact, the, new IV, the NIV here says they're experts um, in greed. And then he gives this Old Testament example of a prophet, a false prophet named Balaam. He says, forsaking the right way. Again, they've rejected the gospel. They've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, we could go into this story. It's a long story in, back in the book of Numbers about Balaam. What happens is the children of Israel are on the plains of Moab about to cross the Jordan River to go into the promised land. And the king of Moab named Balak uh, is afraid of, the, uh, afraid of the, the Jewish people, the numbers that are there. So he sends some of his people up north to a well-known Mesopotamian prophet named Balaam and offers him all kinds of money to come down to curse the people of God. And he goes in that night and he, he prays and seeks the help of the gods. And the true God, Yahweh, actually comes and tells him not to go. So he goes out and tells them the next morning, I can't go. God won't allow me to do it. So the people go back to Balak and Balak sends them back again with more money and more accolades. And they come and say, we want you to come and do this. And he says, well, let me go pray about it. Well, he shouldn't have had to pray about it. God had already told him, don't go. But he goes and prays about it, and I can only imagine what happened. He pled and begged with God to let him have it, and God finally lets him go. But God says, you can go, but you're only going to say what I tell you to say. And he ends up blessing the people of God and greatly angering Balak, the man who's paid him all this money. But it's interesting here, it mentions the story when he's on the way, an angel appears, and Balaam can't see it, but his donkey can and the donkey is trying to restrain him and won't go around. And he begins to beat the donkey and curse the donkey. And the donkey actually speaks with the voice of a man to Balaam. And that's what's referred to here. He received a rebuke for his own transgression, a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. But he's a prototype here of the prophet for prophet. He went and did it in spite of God trying to restrain him. I like uh, what J. Vernon McGee said years ago, the great preacher. He said, the difference between then and now is apparently back then it was uncommon for a jackass to speak. It's a pretty good thought. Yeah, someone else put it like this. Back then it was a miracle when a jackass spoke. Now it's a miracle when one of them keeps quiet. But the point of this story is Balaam wanted to go so badly for this money that he was being given that he went against all good judgment and against God's will to go and finally uh, make this proclamation. But again, as he goes there, every time he tries to curse the people of God, all he can do is bless them. It's all God allows him to do. 
It angers Balak uh, greatly. But that's the point here. They're in it for uh, money. They're base. In verse 17 now, Peter moves from their motivation to their message, and he says they're barren. They're barren. They're springs without water, mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. In other words, what he's saying about these false teachers is when they speak, they arouse great expectations. They build the anticipation, but ultimately they can't deliver. They give people the impression that they really have something to say. They make it palatable and pleasing and attractive. But over in the book of Jude, it says they're clouds without water. It's like a terrible drought on the land. and You see a thunderstorm and clouds rolling in, and they get there, and they just pass over, and they don't drop any refreshment. They look impressive. They look encouraging. They build a sense of great expectation and anticipation. But ultimately, uh, they leave you high and dry. They're springs without water, like someone in the desert uh, going along, and they see a spring in the distance, and they get there seeking refreshment, only to find out that it's sand. And he's saying these false teachers, they stir the emotions, they make you feel good, they make you laugh, but they don't provide any lasting refreshment for spiritually thirsty souls. They're empty. They're mist driven by a storm. It's like a mist that goes by in the morning, a fog that is temporary and shifting and has no permanence. It's like a story I heard years ago about a man who took a friend of his, a Native American man back years ago, and they listened to this preacher, and he was a, a fault. They, the man realized quickly this man was a false teacher, but he was loud and theatrical, but his message was empty. And this friend asked his Native American friend as they were leaving what he thought about him, and he said, big wind, big thunder, no rain. And that's the way false teachers are. There's a lot of big wind and big thunder, but ultimately there's no rain. There, there's no spiritual refreshment. It's all show and no substance. And he says here about them, their terrible fate is, he says in verse 17, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. You know, what's tragic is a lot of false teachers today deny the reality of hell. But tragically, the Bible says that's exactly where they're headed. It says they speak arrogant words of vanity. They're just, just, just full of hot air. They're just spiritual windbags. And he says they entice by fleshly lusts and by sensuality. Again, they entice people by telling them, you can have freedom. Uh, you can throw off all these restraints. You can, you can live uh, how you want to live. Again, it's this gospel of self-fulfillment. They appeal to people's desires and cater to their cravings and tell them what they want to hear. But they don't really demand any real change uh, to life. There was a, a man years ago named uh, Gregory Potemkin, some of you may have heard that name before. He was uh, a well-known uh, Russian during the reign of Catherine the Great. He was a brilliant statesman and a successful field marshal, uh, conquered some new territory for Russia. But he had one fatal flaw. He would constantly over-exaggerate nearly everything he did. And at one time he was boasting incessantly to Catherine the Great about all the building he'd done in the outer regions of Russia, especially in Crimea. And he painted such a lavish picture of all the beautiful buildings he'd built that one day she said, well, I want to go see all of this for myself. Of course, this put him in a spot because what he'd been saying was just a big lie. So he left the city as quickly as possible and traveled to Crimea and gathered thousands of men to build hollow facades of villages, kind of like Hollywood props along the banks of the Dnieper River. And he had people there walking up and down the streets at the time of the queen's visit. 
And as the queen and her entourage passed by, they were quickly paraded down the streets so that they didn't notice that it was not a real city at all. It was just a hollow facade. And Potemkin's standing was greatly enhanced in the eyes of the empress because of this. Now, to add even more intrigue to this story, some people believe the story itself is a myth. But nevertheless, after that, there came an expression known as a Potemkin village. It's something that's just a facade. In other words, it's not real. Something that appears elaborate and impressive, but it's, it's fake and it lacks substance. It's just a counterfeit of what it seems to be. And Peter is saying here that these false teachers are just one gigantic Potemkin village, just an elaborate, impressive counterfeit. And in this chapter that we're reading, the, the fraudulent facade is removed and the counterfeit here is exposed. So these false teachers are brazen. They're arrogant. They're a law to themselves. They're base. They live immoral lives and lead others in that. And they're barren. They're just an an empty, empty facade. The final trait of these false teachers is they betray. They betray. This This is strong stuff here. He says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, The word knowledge there isn't just the word gnosis. It's the intensified word epigenosis. They've come to the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, some believe that these people were were saved and they knew the Lord. They're believers, but then they've just lost their salvation. Now, that can't be true because earlier in the letter of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this, We've obtained an inheritance that's imperishable, it's undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Back in 1 Peter 1.5, Peter says, look, you have a salvation that's death-proof, it's sin-proof, it's time-proof. It'll never, ever fade away. It's imperishable. It's reserved for you in heaven. So salvation, once received, I believe can never be lost. So what he's saying here is these are people that came to a full knowledge of the truth about Jesus, and they professed to believe it, but actually they uh, are imposters. They profess to know Christ. I mean, after all, they profess to know Him. That's how they got in the church. That's how they were accepted to start with. But ultimately, their, their true colors will be shown. And it's strong language here. He says they go back and get entangled again. And they're overcome by the defilements of the world. The last state of them has become worse than the first. This is a a powerful statement. It would have been better for them not to have known, and again, it's that word to fully know, the way of righteousness, than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It would have been better for them not to have known the truth, to have known it and to have professed it for some period of time and then to reject it and to go back to the old way of life. And he says, It's happened to them according to the true proverb, as a dog returns to its vomit and a sow after washing washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Notice he doesn't call them sheep. He calls them dogs and pigs, unclean animals. But he's saying they go back and ultimately return to their former ways. They'd been reformed if they hadn't been regenerated. They've been kind of cleaned up, but they'd never really been converted. So like a sick dog that feels better for a while and a cleaned pig that looks better, 
The false teachers never really changed. They always had the same nature. They always had the same spiritual DNA is what Peter is telling us. And eventually they return back to the vomit and back to the mud. It's a graphic picture here of seducers and false teachers. Now, as we close, let me just give a little bit of application for us here this morning to take with us to think through. The first thing I would say about this is you and I need to be looking and be ready for the coming of Christ. You say, well, what does that have to do with this passage this morning? Well, I believe one of the signs of the times is growing apostasy within the church. Think about this. The the last book in the New Testament before the book of Revelation is the book of Jude. The book of Jude is about false teaching and apostasy. And I think those books were put in order uh, by, by God's hand. And it's giving us the conditions that will be on earth when the events of the end times begin to unfold. The false teaching will be rampant. There's always been false teachings, we said, in the early church, but the Bible says it's going to proliferate as the end draws near. It's going to be a progression. The trajectory is going to be upward. In 2 Timothy, we read that evil men and seducers will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So with the Internet and, and all the television and all the ways to get error out there, it's telling us that it's going to proliferate as, as the end times draw near. Now, look, TV and, and live stream and all this technology is wonderful. It's a vehicle to get out the truth. But it's also used by those um, who are promulgating error as well. But we need to be looking and be ready. The, the, the explosion of false teaching we see today, I think, is a, a discernible sign of the times. A second application I would give is we need to be balanced. When it comes to false teaching, there's two extremes. Some people are obsessed with error. They're preoccupied and consumed with it. They're fixated on the false. But I think the other extreme is some are obsessed with error. The other extreme is some are oblivious to error. They're naive and simplistic and have their head in the sand, and they don't want to ever think about anything negative and just think about the positive. Look, you and I need to be balanced. We need to be cognizant of false teaching, but not consumed with it. Kind of like a, a quarterback on a football team. You know, if, he, if he's going to be a good quarterback, he has to mainly focus on his own team. He has to, to mainly know his own playbook and his own players. But he has to know also about the other team. If he doesn't know about them, then he's probably going to get some blitzes and some coverages that he's not expecting. And it's the same with us. We, we want to have our focus be on our playbook, what God has told us. We need to be aware of the enemy, at least, and his blitzes and his coverage schemes and those various things so that uh, we can be successful in uh, living our own spiritual life and encouraging others as well. So you and I need to be balanced. But, but the third thing I would see from this passage is you and I need to be knowing and growing <laughs> Again, the, the, the key word in 2 Peter is know. Sixteen different times you have forms of that word. We need to know. We need to know the truth, and we need to teach the truth. That's why we do what we do here every Sunday morning at Faith Bible Church and on Wednesday nights and in, in various ministries that we have uh, throughout the week here at the church. We teach the truth because we don't want people to be caught up in or swept away by error. Look, Peter here, and he's writing this, Peter is a shepherd. He's protecting the sheep. And the main duty of pastors today is to feed and protect the sheep from wolves. It's the most important thing a shepherd does. If a shepherd doesn't feed the sheep and protect them from wolves, nothing else really matters. 
And here at Faith Bible Church, our first two core values, we want people to believe the gospel, and we want people to grow in the truth and grow in Jesus Christ. That's our, our main focus. We want you to believe the gospel, to trust Jesus Christ and take him to be your savior, to find him to be the way and the truth and the life. We also want to be growing then once we come to know him, growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And again, that's why Peter starts this book in chapter 1 talking about spiritual growth before he gets to chapter 2 to take on the false teachers. Because a growing, deepening Christian life is the best defense against deception. The greatest antidote to error is the truth of God's word. I mean, what does Peter say back in chapter 1 and verse 16? We didn't follow cleverly devised tales. We made known to you the power and the coming of Jesus Christ. Down in verse 21, he says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's the Word of God. That's the source of truth that God has given to us. And we need to know it and we need to be growing in it. Here's a great quote I read this week by John Piper. This is a, a really a word to me and to our leadership in the church, but to all of us. He says, let your teaching be so powerful in clarifying the greatness and the beauty and the worth of God's truth that your people will smell error before it infects their lives. The shape of error is always changing. You can't preach enough negative sermons to stay ahead of it, and you don't have to. The best protection against the darkness of error is the light of truth. That's a great statement. Look, error is always changing forms. You can't preach enough negative sermons to stay ahead of it, and we don't have to. The best protection against the darkness of error is the truth of the light. Uh, I've got a story I want to tell you quickly that happened to me on Friday, and uh, some of you are going to think, be tempted to think I just made this story up to kind of fit in with today's sermon, but I didn't. It really happened. On a Friday afternoon, late in the afternoon, I went to go get some food at a restaurant. Uh, my son Justin and his wife Natalie and their kids were coming over. Went to go get some food, and you know how it is now. You call ahead, and you have to sit curbside, and they bring it out to you and, and all of that. And so I was sitting out there in the parking lot, and I got there a little bit early, so I sat there for about 15 minutes. And, uh, you know, I looked at my phone a little bit, checked some uh, emails and listened to the radio and whatever. And I was going to pay with cash. And, uh, by the way, this is the first time I've ever brought money into the pulpit with me like this. But I was going to pay with cash, and I was going to pay with a $100 bill. And I had the $100 bill laying there in my lap for when they came out there. And I looked down at it, and the light kind of hit it kind of interestingly. And as you move it there, this blue line, I noticed there was like a bell and, and the, the, the letters 100, the numbers 100 or 100. I'd never seen that ever before. I'd always just seen this blue line down the middle of a $100 bill, but I didn't know if you moved it that these things are moving in there, all these little uh, microchips uh, or microfibers or whatever um, is in there. And so it got me thinking to myself, you know, I, I don't know how many times I've used $100 bills, and this has been in there since 2013. I'd never noticed it. And uh, I thought, well, what else do I not know about, about our currency or our money? And I found out that um, in a, a $20 bill, that there's, uh, when it's held to the light, there's a portrait watermark of President uh, Jackson that's invisible from both sides of the note. And then again, you have this $100 bill with this 3D security ribbon. And as I sat there that day and thought about what I was going to be preaching on today, I thought to myself, I'm glad that I know Christianity better than I know currency. 
Because I could have easily been uh, deceived not knowing what to look for uh, in, in this $100 bill. But, you know, that's the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christianity. When, you, when it's held up to the light, uh, true Christianity, the true currency, has the watermark in it of the face of Jesus Christ. It has within it the face of the gospel. And that's what you and I need to cling to and hold to. That's what we need to come to know together. That's my desire here for our church, for all of you who are watching, who are listening. My hope is that as a church here at Faith Bible Church, we will be people who will know Him and grow in Him. That's what God desires for us to do, that we'll draw close to Him. That's our surest defense I'm against false teaching. May God help us to do that. May God give us the courage and the strength to be growing, uh, knowing Christians in these days in which we live. Well, let's pray together. Again, if you're watching here today or listening and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, we've talked here today about the way. We've talked about those who have forsaken the way, but maybe, maybe you've never found the way. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Why not trust in Him now? Trust in Jesus Christ and take Him to be your Savior from sin. The Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He'll give you a full pardon from all your sins. Well, Father, we ask that you'd help us as your people to constantly be looking into your word and praying and drawing near to you and seeing that watermark, that true watermark of the face of Jesus Christ, the face of the true gospel. I'm in your word. You'll guide us, Father, into the way everlasting. Father, encourage us now, strengthen us, help us in these times in which we live to be faithful to you. We ask these, name, these things in the name that's above every name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
thank you again for joining us here, here this morning. We really appreciate it. Uh, we pray uh, God's richest blessings upon you in this coming week. Uh, next week, I have a special message for Mother's Day. We're going to leave Second uh, Peter, and it's a message from back in the Gospels. And uh, it's been uh, a great encouragement to me in my life already. I've been looking ahead at this passage. So uh, you want to join us next time. I hope it will be a great encouragement to you as well. Well, let's uh, bow our heads now before the Lord for the benediction as we are dismissed here for, with his blessing upon us. Uh, this is the great benediction from the end of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in his presence with glory, blameless, with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. All God's people said, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next time.